The House of Roll journeys far and wide to bring you exceptional quality kitchen and bath fixtures. We've discovered the world's best craftsmen and techniques. Using materials native to the region and tools accustomed to individual craftsmen, we strive for perfection every step of the way. With all of this, you'll see the details of your own story, the story of a life well-crafted. This is the story Craft tells. Welcome to the House of Roll. promise of America is being squandered. How are we going to restore our nation back to a sensible, citizen-centric government? This is my country. for populism with a purpose. Welcome to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Joyce is a businesswoman, not a politician, and she's here to offer pragmatic, possible, and post-partisan solutions for the 21st century. Now, your host for Reimagine America, Joyce Cordy. And welcome to the Reimagine America Radio Hour. The traditional media and traditional partisan politicians on both sides of the aisle have been working overtime this week, trying to inflame your passions. My purpose is different. I've come to inform you, to give you information that will enable you to make an independent judgment on current events and to encourage you to act on that judgment. As a businesswoman, I focus a lot on the numbers and the numbers tell me what is out of the norm, what needs attention, what do we got to immediately triage and then how to prioritize necessary change. And in the numbers this week, 11 dead and millions evacuated. We should all pray for the people of North and South Carolina who are experiencing a 100-year flood, flood uh, emergency in the wake of what was Hurricane Florence. Um, it appears that more than a million people evacuated to higher ground, but you know what? With the storm still stationed over the Carolinas, there is going to be a lot of inland flooding. So... When the Red Cross asks you to um, text a $10 donation to, I believe it's 99999, um, do it. Those people really do need our help right now. But there is something else that bothers me about what happened in the Carolinas this week. And that is that there were mandatory evacuation orders for eight counties on the North Carolina coast. And millions of people heeded those. They opened the freeways, they moved people east, etc. They opened shelters. They did a lot of really, really good work. But then as the storm approached, um, more and more people were discovered having boarded up their houses, etc., and hunkered down trying to weather the storm because they couldn't afford you know, the two tanks of gas and all of the, um, you know, meals, et cetera, even if they had a place to stay, um, it to get to get out of harm's way. And that is how 11 people died. There were elderly people 
who said, oh, I'm so oxygen dependent, I don't know how to evacuate. We are the United States of America. We have the mightiest military in the world. That military is right there at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. We are a generous nation. If people need help to get out of harm's way, we ought to be able to come up with a couple hundred bucks to help them to do that. That does not seem, my goodness, uh, all of the stuff we know about about Scott Pruitt's um, skiff, et cetera, would have paid to evacuate those thousands of people who ended up hunkered down in their homes in the midst of storm surge and wind and no power and um, flooding, et cetera, because they couldn't afford, they live paycheck to paycheck, they couldn't afford to take their family inland out of harm's way. That's not, excu- that's not understandable and it's not excusable in the United States. We need FEMA to do a better job and we need Congress to help us to understand why this happens over and over again, why the Cajun nas- nation's little um, armada has to go in as a volunteer force repeatedly to rescue people who cannot get out of harm's way without help. You will remember, Katrina, that the stadium in New Orleans was the resort, was the refuge of last resort for people who were too um, poor to get out of harm's way. I'm sorry, we need to get those people out of harm's way. And Congress, that is your responsibility. Instead of senseless hearings and running for the microphones, do some good. Take a look. Do an after-action report. Understand why thousands of people hunkered down and tried to ride this storm out and why a mother and child died in a, um, it, when a tree fell on, their, on the baby's bedroom um, in a home in Wilmington, North Carolina. That's because they couldn't afford to evacuate. That's not acceptable. It's not acceptable in 2018. So we need an after-action report, and we need to figure out how we can avoid doing that again, having that circumstance again, instead of arguing about how many people died in the aftermath of Puerto Rico, which is an entirely different subject. And so much for my, for my little lecture. Um, you know, conservative that I am, fiscal hawk that I am, I, I want to make sure we're spending money to, to, to protect people's lives and safety. Okay, so let's move on to the rest of the numbers this week because there were plenty. How about 750,000 copies of a million printed? That's the number of copies that the Woodward book Fear sold um, on Tuesday, the day it was released. I mean, Amazon actually sent out a notice to all of its subscribe, the people who had uh, pre-ordered and said, "Oh, we won't deliver for two weeks," and then the book showed up in my in my mailbox the next day because I had ordered it the day that it was announced, um, and so we're going to talk about it this morning. But <clears throat> which should we worry more about: a five hundred billion dollar trade deficit or a budget deficit? of 800 billion moving toward a trillion dollar deficit, that's an annual deficit, 
within the next 18 months. And that's a conservative estimate because it comes from the United States Treasury and Stephen Munchen is a conservative uh, forecaster. <clears throat> He's a Goldman Sachs guy, so he looks for the good, not the bad. Okay, so we're going to talk a little about that. 31%, that's the increase in online Nike sales this week after the debut of the, of the Colin Kaepernick uh, commercial. And we should talk about that. What does that mean? And 10%, that's the new level of tariff that President Trump is now intending to impose on $200 million of additional Chinese goods while holding $265 billion more in the wings. And does that make sense in... Um, in the current uh, in our current economy uh it was however it is that that news is mixed uh with the fact that the chinese are sending a delegation next week to talk about trade so um let's hope that uh tariff that we can get away from these tariffs and i have to ask that question again you know what where is congress in this Congress gave fast, what's called fast-track authority to presidents to negotiate, not to unilaterally impose tariffs, which are an Article I prerogative. In other words, only the, the founding fathers intended that tariffs be imposed after there is conversation, dialogue, and debate in the House of Representatives and the United States Senate. So, Congress... Do we need to talk about reframing what we mean when we give the president um, fast-track trade authority? And we'll be back in just a minute with some thoughts about fear. You're listening to Reimagine America on 860 AM, The Answer. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy. And we're back with the Reimagine America Radio Hours. Reader's Digest Summary of the book Fear. So what did I take away from this book? Um, everything in this book, as I as I just said about fast track authority in the last um, segment. Um, everything in this book underscores the comments that Ben Sass made and the early hours of the Kavanaugh hearing about the purpose of, of the three parts of U.S. government, the, what the constitutional fathers intended, that the legislature legislate, the executive execute, and the judiciary call balls and strikes on what the executive and the and the legislative branches were doing. And if you would like to hear Ben Sass's entire 11-minute um, lecture on American civics, uh, if you have kids who are about to take that um, all-important senior year civics exam in high school, you can go to reimagineamerica.org and you'll find it, the podcast from last week's um, radio show, posted there and uh, Senator Sass's comments are uh, there in their entirety. 
and it's uh, it really is worth listening to if you if you missed last week's show. So, <clears throat> as I said, my biggest takeaway from Bob Woodward's book Fear about the Trump White House is that it underscores what Ben Sass says uh, said last week about the fact that Congress is not doing its job. Okay, Congress has ceded way too much authority to the executive and to an anonymous um, bureaucracy. Uh, I like to call them the unelected, unaccountable, anonymous bureaucracy. Lifetime appointments, you know. Um, and, and, and that that makes the executive way too powerful, much more powerful than um, the founding fathers intended. And that forces the courts to then act as a quasi-legislative branch. And that is not the intention of the founding fathers, nor is there a reason for this drift. Yes, we're a much bigger country. Yes, we're much more complicated. But the fundamentals of who should make law, who should um, work with the Congress to negotiate a treaty on trade, who should make environmental policy, um, are those are constitutionally the obligations of Congress. And my theory is, as we're about to reelect or not reelect members of Congress, is you got to ask yourself, are they doing their job? And I'm going to um, put out 1st of October when our ballots come out, um, when I call my congressional scorecard, and that will help you. It's all very objective. You answer the questions, and it'll add up your score, and it will tell you whether or not you should vote for this person to reelect them or if, in fact, the opponent might be a better choice for you. So um, stay tuned. We'll be publishing that in about a month. Um, it was It's such a useful tool that, don't laugh, the Russians downloaded it uh, during the attack in July. So uh, look forward to that. But in the meantime, let's talk a little about what um, Bob Woodward was able to learn about what goes on in the um, Trump White House and you know, all books are subjective because they're written by people and people have their, you know, no matter how you try to be objective, um, people have their own in, internal um, prejudices. But here's what I've learned so far, and I haven't finished. I've read 224 of the 345 pages. Um, and you know what? Except for a discussion um of the Rob Rosenstein memo uh, that preceded the firing of James Comey, and it, it appears that uh, that Rosenstein really did want to fire uh, Comey, um, and that's a subject for another day, whether that was appropriate or not. Um, except for that, Russia hardly ever gets mentioned. The entire Mueller investigation comprises about mm, three paragraphs of the first hundred and first two-thirds of the book. So what have we learned? Um, to quote Bob Woodward, all presidencies are audience-driven. 
but Trump's central audience is often himself. He keeps giving himself reviews, and most are passionately positive. Now, that, that end, end quote. Um, and, and you and I know from um, both uh, his television interviews um, and that, uh, that he does give himself really good marks. And uh, we also know from his Twitter feed um, that um, he does have a, a tendency to be a bit self-centered. And so um, we are, uh, you know, it's hard not to agree, believe that statement. Um, one of the things that Woodward points to in the book, um, and it is not attributed, is that uh, Trump asks for um, tweets to be printed out. You know, he doesn't use a computer at all. Um, that he wants tweets printed out if there are 200,000 likes or more because he looks in those for the consistent threads, what, what triggers people. Um, and, you know, that is the product. That's how you do advertising, you know. So um, that's completely understandable. Um, apparently, the president in, you know, in foreign affairs is all about personal relationships. Uh, in the book, um, uh, McMasters and now Bolton have tried to explain that President Xi of China is using the president, that China is an economic aggressor and plans to become number one in the world, and that we need a strategy to counter this. And by the way, tariffs on Chinese goods are not a strategy. So I completely agree with Trump on, on Chinese aggression in Afghanistan and Pakistan. Yes, there are lots of rare earth minerals in um, Afghanistan that need to be mined. So why should it be our obligation to pacify Afghanistan so that the Chinese can come in and invest in those rare earth minerals? And yes, that is what's happening now. So this is a point where I completely agree with President Trump, and we need to tell, to convince the Afghans that you're either with us, with us or against us. There is no middle ground. Um, he, uh, the president has taken some action um, uh, on the advice of Pompeo to um, act against Pakistan's um, unwillingness to manage the Taliban on their side of the border. We're going to withhold $300 million in defense, in um, military aid. But then do remember that Pakistan is a nuclear power and we don't want to lose control of those nukes. But their biggest investor, Pakistan's biggest investor, is China. And, and we're not managing Along with India, we are not managing that threat of the so-called Belt Road effectively. The Chinese also, um, you know, the Chinese and the Iranians are really big in global narcotics. Big part of how Hezbollah is funded by the Iranians is in narcotics. And there's no place that grows more heroin in the world than Afghanistan. Okay, so Trump is absolutely correct 
to point to Chinese aggression um, in Afghanistan and Pakistan, but we need a strategy to counter it. And our Afghan strategy is more about containment of than you know has to be more about more than just containment of the Taliban. Pakistan is the existential threat, and no. Endless war is not the answer. The president is instinctively absolutely correct there. But he's incorrect to believe, and after the break, I'm going to go back and find the quote in the book. Uh, the president thinks that the United States military, when it's engaged, should be making money for America. And that just isn't the way that America has seen itself as a beacon for freedom and liberty and fairness and protecting the innocent um, around the globe. So, you know, we can have the argument about whether we can afford alone to be the policeman of the world. And that's an argument I think the president is right to raise. But it's not about making money. It's about extending our values. It's about protecting the innocent. And above all, it's about protecting the homeland. And we'll be back in just a moment with a couple more thoughts on fear and a bunch of other stuff. Back to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy on 860 AM, The Answer. And we're back. And let's finish up on what we've learned from from Woodward's book. Um, And, you know, I've read every book since Water... I I wasn't particularly aware or interested, but, you know, subsequently read the Watergate um, stuff. Um, I know that most presidents, uh, when written about by Woodward, have actually been interviewed by Woodward. And that's one of the things we're going to talk about here real briefly is who did and who didn't talk to him. Um, but I promised you a couple of quotes, and we're going to do that. Um, and this is one that comes from um, a meeting about South Korean um protecting South Korea, the THAAD missile system, which gives us early warning of the potential of a ballistic missile coming at us, okay? And the president's view that if we just pulled out all the troops out of Korea, that everything would be fine um, because the Koreans don't want to pay us for that military force that we keep there. Um, And so, you know, again, in the book, the quote is, the president was speaking as if the U.S. military were a mercenary force for hire, uh, and there were no American interests in forging and keeping a peaceful world order, as if America's organizing principle was money. Uh, and that's a theme that gets repeated um, over and over again in the president's um, um grudging acceptance of certain U.S. responsibilities and saying, you know, the military is not making money for us. The United States military's job is not to make money. It is to keep you and me able to sleep safely and confidently in our homes, okay? Um, 
and and enough of enough of that. So what did we learn? I mean, I didn't learn that much. Um, I, I said I would slog through the book. Um, now you don't have to. Uh, and and what did so what did we learn? Well, we didn't what we already knew that Trump is egotistical, unstructured, impulsive, that he has a short attention span, that his instincts, sometimes his instincts, for example, um, you know, his concerns about the humanitarian crisis in Syria are very, very good. Um, but it, it doesn't help because he doesn't follow through because, it, you know, doesn't have hard and fast convictions. One of the, you know, when it comes to, to the U.S. economy, um, he uses tariffs as a weapon, but he doesn't always stop and think that there are consequences for Americans as well. Um, and in this moment, you know, it's too complicated. We, we should sometimes sit down and talk about um, what a tariffs really do to an overall economy, but this isn't the day for that. So, um, you know, I think the president is instinctively correct. I, I remember back to the convention speech when he said, you know, I'm going to help you. And, and I just believe that he believed that um, with every fiber of his being. Um, he, he wants to worry about those people. But, but going back, going backwards, a regressive economic policy doesn't address that prob- problem correctly. So, you know, that becomes frustrating. Um, and, and one of the things that we know is that um, uh, the president is very set in his way. So he has ideas about trade, about military power, and about alliances that are 30, 40, 50, or even in the case of alliances, uh, a, a century, you know, end of World War I, out of date. Okay, and his his um, friends in the White House find it very difficult to get him to um, modify those um, uh, those impulses and those ideas that they're kind of you know he's set in his ways. Oh, and by the time you get to be over 70 years old, you do have certain life patterns, and it is hard to change them, but. When you're president of the United States, you need to gather the best and the brightest around you and then listen to them and act on what they say. You are, in fact, the decider. Okay. But it's really, really clear in this book who talked and who didn't. So Hope Hicks is mentioned once. (laughs) She didn't talk. So who did talk? It's pretty obvious. Bannon. Um, Bannon is um, quoted, uh, Bannon is um, presented, and it is very clear um, um, that Woodward is suspicious of Bannon's real motives, which is consistent with previous books and your own reaction when you see Bannon on television. Okay. Um, Ryan's Priebus was a big contributor to this book. Um, and he, he comes across as though he knew what he was doing and he was managing the White House. So, um, you know, one of the things I noticed is that uh, people who were, you can tell who, who contributed to the book by how positively they feel about their own contributions. 
hey, another big contributor was Rob Porter, who comes across as smart, disciplined, patriotic, even if we know that he's a very flawed human being, he presents himself as though he were the bastion of all process and goodness, and and he alone was the Dutch boy keeping the White House flowing smoothly. Um, So, and then comes um, Senator Lindsey Graham. You know, I, I get, I think I now understand Graham's game. Uh, because it's been perplexing um, that he could be so close. I mean, he was almost a, a son to McCain. Um, you know, well, he's a little old to be McCain's son, but, you know, they were extraordinarily close. Um, and and then you see him, given the situation with McCain and with Trump, but you can also see how he uses his charm and good humor, and he is charming, and he is good-humored, and he's smarter than a whip. And you see how he uses those things um, effectively. There is a theory in the book, and I think I might subscribe to it, that he would like to be the the majority leader of the United States Senate. Well, we'll see about that. Um, but, but I feel more charitably about some of the things that Lindsey Graham has done recently when you see it in the context of this book. Um, Cone, Cone did speak to, yeah, Cone did speak to um, Woodward. It's clear. Um, We know he's smart. He was a patriot, he said. That was why, as a Democrat, he went into the administration. Um, But he really had no affection for the president. And I wonder if you can serve a president you actively dislike. Okay. Um, Kushner may or may not have talked to Woodward, but you know what? He comes off as smart, really briefing book smart, but a risk taker, which is evidence from his business career and more tactical than strategic, but somebody who can listen to people he thinks know more about a subject than he can. And so we should be uh, that's, you know, he comes across as, as being much more useful, um, much more engaged uh, than the press would lead us to believe. So it is very clear that Ivanka never said a word to Woodward. But boy, did people talk about her. And we'll be back in just a minute with some thoughts on a bunch of other subjects. You're listening to Reimagine America on 860 AM, The Answer. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy. And we're back. So, yeah, we can talk about... Um, Let's talk for a minute about, I don't know about you, but what do you think is worth? A $500 billion trade deficit? That's something we can work on. Or a trillion dollar annual deficit. Money we have to borrow from other countries. Can you say China? So these two things are really closely linked. 
And instead of fighting for uh, the blue wave or the red wave or the whatever, why isn't Congress more concerned about these things? You know, I've been a Republican all my life. Now, I'm a social moderate, but I got to tell you, I'm a fiscal conservative. I want to spend money um, wisely. I believe that tax policy should address the revenue side of the ledger and that we should be parsimonious about how we spend money, the people's money, okay, on the other side, but that we have obligations. We have obligations to pay Social Security, to pay Medicare, to take care of people who cannot take care of their own health care costs, to keep people fed, fed and clothed. We need infrastructure. We need a lot of stuff. We spend about $4 trillion a year. That's just the government share. A lot of your infrastructure, as you know, uh, electricity, et cetera, comes from um, private uh, sources. But a trade deficit is not the end of the world. Trade deficit is not the end of the world because that trade deficit is what drives our booming economy. If you have um, experienced the 2% increase in um, uh, wages this year, then you know you appreciate the fact that you can buy a really smart television for 500 bucks when in fact you can then spend that other $500 on other kinds of things like you know a Starbucks latte etc so the fact that we buy imported goods um consumer goods is not is not shrinking our economy it's growing our economy um because it's leaving you, the consumer, more disposable income to put into small time, you know, small businesses, restaurants, um, nail salons, all of those sorts of businesses that can't be offshored. And you know what the biggest exports from the United States are to other countries? Well, they're automobiles, airplanes other sorts of really big, you know, uh, John Deere, et cetera. So those kinds of heavy industrial exports are very, very important, both to the health of our economy and to our national defense. You know, in World War II, the auto companies really, really grew rapidly, which is how they were able to produce, mass produce, um, millions of cars after the war when the demand surged because they built tanks during the war. They built airplanes during the war. Um, And we need that capacity. So the president's absolutely right. We need a domestic steel and aluminum industry. But I don't believe we need tariffs against Canada to get them or against Mexico to get them. Canada and Mexico especially Canada, is our most reliable ally. Now, we're going to have an interesting time with the new um, Mexican government. But um, there are ways that we could create that steel industry if Congress wanted to do its job. Congress wanted to do its job. We could have the most robust steel industry, which, by the way, is not a labor-intensive industry, Okay, because we need steel for infrastructure. 
So if we could create the demand with a good piece of legislation that would create an infrastructure bank from which both public and private entities could borrow in order to do the infrastructure development we urgently need, $4 trillion of it. So I'm not too worried about that trade deficit. I think we can manage our way out of, we, we can manage it down. Okay, we can't manage it to not be there at all. We can manage it down. And we can still have little sequented T-shirts on our kids every day at a cost of less than $5 per. Now, whether that's a legitimate way to run the world is a subject for another day. But I ask you, how long can we be the strongest military in the world and the biggest economy in the world if we have to borrow a trillion dollars a year from uh, both our own citizens and citizens around the world and accumulating debt that we are going to pass on to our children and our grandchildren? And if you think that is not um, the biggest, um, one of the former Joint Chiefs of Staff um, in his closing um, remarks to the Senate said the largest threat against U.S. security, and this is something that Dan Coats has said as well as the DNIs, the Director of National Intelligence has said, is the biggest threat to American national security is the size of our debt. So if you wanna decide which one of those is more important, and you want to ask your congressperson what they're doing to help us to right that ship, it's the deficit. It's not the trade imbalance. I'm not saying trade imbalances are not important. But I do want you to remember a couple of numbers. Yes, we, we've got a $500 billion net um, import problem, but... We export to the rest of the world about $140 billion a year in agricultural products, and we could do more. But if we get into a trade war with China or a trade war with Mexico, what's going to happen to all those hogs and soybeans? Those markets could be lost, and those markets, if lost, are lost forever. You know, it's hard to get those markets back. It is also very difficult for the private sector to decide how to invest if they have no certainty about the future, about taxes, tax rates, what will be taxed, what won't be taxed, and our old friend, the regulatory state. How much do you think a 460-page clean air executive order cost the American economy in the eight years of Obama? And how much do you think of that is going to be wasted in reversals because the, Obama, the Trump administration canceled that 460-page executive order. And, oh, by the way, what if President Trump isn't president in 2021? Is somebody going to reimpose that all those stru structures and strictures on U.S. industry? 
if you want to reduce the trade deficit, you have to give American business, the mom, the small business on the corner, the big box store, the manufacturer, the miner, etc. You have to give people certainty. We plan businesses in five-year cycles, and that's a congressional responsibility. So if you want deficits to shrink, Congress needs to start by doing its basic job so that businesses can plan, and then its secondary job, which is to figure out how to pay for the things we all value while driving down that deficit. And yes, it can be done. Simpson Bowles would have done it by now. And we can't abandon the idea that it's really, really important. It's our national security's biggest risk is a trillion dollar a year budget deficit out of Washington. And we'll be back in just a moment with some closing thoughts. Back to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy on 860 AM, The Answer. And we're back with just a few closing thoughts. So um, as we're closing up, I said $140 billion in agricultural exports. You know what our next largest export is? Armaments. (laughs) $79 billion a year worth of those. And and um, about the same in airplanes and cars. Um, And 83,000 of those cars a year are um, U.S. and um, German cars that are made in South Carolina and exported to China. So there are a lot of jobs that could be lost to a 10% tariff in South Carolina. Um, Lynchburg, Tennessee, uh, doesn't take that many people to make whiskey. So, in a nutshell, 31% increase in Nike sales uh, says that the NFL, NFL needs to be cautious about how it deals with um, its players and their dignity and their right to um, peaceful protest. Um, the kneeling in front of the flag is not the same as burning the flag. We are making those two things. Um, we're, we're, we're talking about patriotism at a time when the most patriotic thing to do would be to say, hey, we've got a problem and we need to go fix it. Um, 70% of the NFL is black. Mel- many of those players, Kaepernick's not one of them, but many of those players would have had no other future had their athletic skills not put them on um on a track to the nfl um and so let's just take a moment and there's also some demographics and that 31 percent increase in online sales that's young people supporting that so what else happened this week that we need to really think about you know how concerned i am about about homelessness well we're being heard because the city of san jose is now rethinking its refusal to use um its abandoned uh city hall annex as a potential uh shelter for um or temporary home 
for those who are homeless. Um, and I applaud the city's willingness to look at that again. But you know what? Um, it'll be winter in another um, 45 days or so. And I want to know how you're going to get all those people off the street um, and into some solid housing. A, a tent, can, tent encampments are not housing. Last but not least, um, Judge Kavanaugh's confirmation to the Supreme Court is hanging in the balance. And here comes the anonymous letter. Hashtag me too 30 years ago when we were in high school. Um, and Diane Feinstein sits on it for 10 weeks and then briefs the senators, but not their staffs and has never talked to the woman whose name is redacted because she wants to make this claim and, and besmirch a man without being willing to show her face. If this is the best you've got, if this is the best you've got Democrats, then, um, I really think, um, that when all is said and done, um, the, the the judge will get confirmed. But as I said last week, I don't think this is good for the court. I agree with Ben Sass; it is not good for the country. Um, and you know what else? As a woman, as a woman who's experienced my share of being the only girl in the room, um, I will say that when you use hashtag Me Too in this way. You diminish the movement. You make it harder for women who have a legitimate claim to make. And as to the 65 women, you know, the press is going, well, how did they find 65 women to vouch for him so quickly? Well, you know who went out and did that? His Judge Kavanaugh's female clerks went out and found those women to sign that letter. And you know how hard that is? You got to find the one person who helped to organize the last class reunion, and she's got all the names and email addresses. It is not a big deal. So um, I think, you know, we know how California will vote. Um, but if the Democrats, if that's all you got, if all you got is an anonymous claim, 30, 35 years ago that can't even be corroborated, the FBI won't investigate, then this man that the American Bar Association says is exceptionally well qualified should get his seat, and he should get his seat with an overwhelming vote because he represents the court doing what the founders wanted it to do, calling balls and strikes and instructing the legislature and we'll be back next week and until then have a great week and if you want to learn more reimagineamerica.org this podcast is a part of the c-suite radio network for more top business podcasts visit c-suiteradio.com